Well, good morning. It's good to be in the pulpit this morning. I always count as a privilege to open up God's Word with you. This morning, you get to pick your own sermon title. The subject is the death of John the Baptist. I had two in mind. Don't buy the lie or hold on to hope. You can choose one of those or write in your own, but we're going to be talking about this uplifting story of the beheading of John the Baptist. What I want to do is, before we get into Matthew 14, I want to quickly, basically run through the Matthew 1 all the way to Matthew 14, just to give you an idea about where we are in the story of Scripture, specifically in the life of Jesus and John the Baptist. So here we go. Matthew, many of you probably know, begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And then it moves from the genealogy of Jesus to the birth of Jesus. And Jesus is born, and that's where we just come off of Christmas. But not too long after Jesus is born, they have to leave. They have to leave Bethlehem, and they head to Egypt. And the reason why they have to to Egypt is because there's a bad man. And the bad man is named Herod. This is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great uh, had a tendency to execute anyone who was a threat to his throne. That included his own wives and sons. And so when he hears about Jesus, he's saying, people are calling him king. People are calling him this Messiah. We're going to find him and kill him. So he orders the decree for all the babies under two in the entire region to be put to death. So the angel warns Mary and Joseph, and they flee to Egypt. It's not too long after that that Herod the Great dies. So when he dies... The angel of the Lord comes back to Joseph and Mary, and they make their way back to Israel. They want to go to Judea, which is the region that Joseph is originally from. But on their way to the Judea, they hear who's in charge of Judea. And that's a man named Archelaus. And Archelaus was one of the sons of Herod the Great. If Herod was a bad man, Archelaus was a very bad man. He had an even worse reputation than Herod the Great, And so instead of going back to Judea, they go to a little town in Galilee called Nazareth. Jesus grows up in Nazareth. And then Matthew 3, he fast forwards to the time when Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, comes onto the scene. He comes preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus, fulfilling prophecy and beginning to know it's his time to begin his public ministry, he travels down from Galilee to the Jordan River. John the Baptist was from the region of Perea, and the region of Perea included the wilderness of Judea as well as the region all surrounding uh, the Jordan River. And this was the ministry of John the Baptist. So Jesus goes from Galilee down to the Jordan River and is baptized by John. Right after his baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness, and that's where he's tempted for 40 days. And it's about that same time that John the Baptist is put in prison. So when Jesus comes back from the wilderness, he hears that the ruler has imprisoned John. He, goes, he leaves Judea, and he goes back to Galilee, and then begins the ministry of Jesus all throughout the region of Galilee. He begins preaching that familiar message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And then we walk through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. And then after that great sermon, Jesus continues to minister as he goes along. He heals a leper in Matthew chapter 8. He heals this paralyzed man. He goes and finds, um, he goes out on the water with the disciples and there's a storm that comes and we see Jesus calming the storm. Jesus then goes from calming the storm to casting out demons. In Matthew chapter 9, we see more miracles and more healings. He heals a paralytic. Um, he gives, uh, restores sight to the blind, and he allows the mute to speak. We reach this verse in chapter 9, it's verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So the ministry of Jesus continues to get bigger and bigger. His reputation continues to get bigger and bigger. In Matthew chapter 10, he calls the 12 disciples. And the ministry of Jesus is increased 12-fold. So now these apostles, these disciples, go out and they're ministering to people and they're healing people and they're performing miracles all in the name of Jesus. And that happens through chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13 of Matthew. It's stories of healing and stories of teaching. And, and, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom and he's teaching in parables and he's, he's accompanied by miracles. And the whole region of Galilee is talking about this man, Jesus. And that's the short version of what happens from Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 13, where we're at today in Matthew chapter 14. So we'll begin here with verse 1. But if you'll pause for a moment and just pray with me. Dear Lord, I pray that you help us this morning learn your truth, that we would look into the word, that we would understand how it applies to our lives, that we learn some lessons here this morning, that we could take them home, that we could hold on to your grace and hope, that we would apply them to our daily lives for your glory and for the benefit of others. So Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So verse 1 of chapter 14 begins. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So just stop there for a moment. Who is Herod the Tetrarch? This is not Herod the Great, because if you remember, Herod the Great has died. This is not Archelaus. He was the governor of Judea, the region of Judea, and he had half the kingdom after Herod the Great died. Herod the Tetrarch got a quarter of the kingdom. And Herod the Tetrarch, his regions of rule were the regions of Galilee, where Jesus primarily ministered, and Perea, where John the Baptist frequently ministered. So you have Herod, this Herod here, also known as Herod Antipas, who was over these two regions of Jesus and John the Baptist. So no doubt, as these events are unfolding through Matthew 1 through 14, Herod starts to get word about this man, Jesus. And the more he hears about Jesus, the more astonishing the stories get. He's hearing about miracles. He's hearing about healings. He's hearing about people come back from the dead. But when he hears all this, it shows up in his court. He has a peculiar response. Look with me at verse 2. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. 
He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Well, how odd. Here's Herod, the ruler of Galilee and Judea, is all of a sudden equating Jesus with John the Baptist. Well, why does Herod do that? And why does he even care about the death of John the Baptist? And why would he think John the Baptist has come back to life? Well, what Matthew does over the next few verses is he gives us a flashback. He gives us the backstory, and what, we're, what we will learn is that Herod is suffering from a b- b- pretty serious case of guilty conscience. Right, so as we begin in verse number 3, it's the past events that have led to this current scenario. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now here's where the problem started. This explains why John the Baptist was put in prison back when Jesus started his ministry. He had confronted Herod. He said, hey, you know that woman that you're with? Her name was Herodias. It's not lawful that you have her. Why isn't it lawful that I have her? Well, here's, it's a little complicated, but here's the story. Herod, Herodias was not Herod's first wife. Herod was already married to a princess. It was the daughter of a neighboring king. They got married. It was a political alliance common in the day. That was Herod's wife. Herod, while married to his first wife, goes on vacation to Rome. I don't know if his wife was there or not. doesn't matter because what happened while he was Rome in Rome on vacation is he started looking at his half-brother Philip's wife. And the looking turned into lusting, and the lusting turned into adultery. And soon Herod and Herodias were in this adulterous affair. And Herod and Herodias decide that they're going to divorce their respective spouses And they're going to get married. And that's exactly what happens. Herodias divorces Philip. She takes her daughter, Salome, and goes with Herod, who divorced his current wife, and they go back to Galilee together. So you have Herod is now married, unlawfully, to his brother's wife. But to make matters worse... Herodias was not only his brother's wife, she was also his niece. Herodias was the daughter of one of his other half-brothers, which makes his wife his niece. And it also makes his stepdaughter his grandniece. That kind of tells you the family structure or chaos, how you look at it, of Herod the Great's family line. And this would have been a pretty public mess. Everyone would have known about what Herod and Herodias did and the scandal and everything. And here comes John the Baptist, a prophet of God. And what does he care about who Herod chooses to marry? And I think the better question, it's not about John the Baptist caring about who marries who. But it has everything to do with God and what God had decreed 
And what God has said is right. And John, as a prophet, was not afraid to stand up for what was right and to stand up for what was true. And so, as you can imagine, when John goes to Herod and Herodias and says, it's unlawful for you to have her, they don't take it too kindly. Look at the next couple verses, verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. If you were to go over to the parallel account in Mark, it gives us a little extra detail. Mark chapter 16, verse 19 says, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that it was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So this is how John landed in prison. It seems both Herod and Herodias wanted to put John the Baptist to death because of how he confronted their sin. But Herod was afraid of the people who thought he was a prophet. So instead of killing him, he just put him away in prison. But what we'll soon learn is that this wasn't good enough for Herodias. She continued to hold a grudge against John the Baptist. And probably from that very day, she began to plot her revenge. Now, the perfect opportunity came around on Herod's birthday. Now, you should know about Roman birthday celebrations, and especially Roman birthday celebrations in the line of Herod, is that they were known for two things, excessiveness and wickedness. And that was by the pagans, not just the Christians. That gives you an idea of what the birthday celebration will look like for the most powerful man in the region of Galilee. This would have been an all-male event, and it would have included all the big players in Galilee. The rulers, the nobles, it would have included the military commanders, the prominent business people, all the political figures, both Gentiles and Jews that were trying to make their way into Herod's court to have favor with Herod. And so here's what happens next. Continue with me in verse 6 and 7. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So this is what happens. It's a little while into the party. All the men are hanging out. They're eating. They're no doubt drinking to excess. The party starts to get a little rambunctious, probably a little out of hand, maybe a little wild. And then Herodias sends in her daughter. And her daughter enters the room full of men and dances. One commentator made the remark that this was not the chicken dance. Right? She dances provocatively. She dances sexually. She dances in a way that pleased Herod and pleased his guests. It was wrong. It was wicked. At the height of everyone focused on his stepdaughter slash grandniece and her dancing, Herod, no doubt, wanting to impress his guest with his wealth and with his power, he blurts out an oath. And depending on how you read this, he probably said this multiple times 
And he says, oh, Salome, whatever you want, you're so beautiful, you're so pretty, you've pleased us so much, whatever you want, I'll give it up to half my kingdom. So she thinks for a moment, leaves the room, goes and finds her mother. And her mother says, I want you to ask for John the Baptist's head. I just want to pause here for a minute on on like a little side note. These verses, they just wreck me. This picture in my mind of a scheming mother who sends her daughter in like fresh meat to wolves to dance provocatively before a crowd of men so she can get what she wants is despicable. You have the picture of a father who allows his teenage girl to dance in this crowd of men and commends it. And then you have this girl this 15 or 16-year-old girl, what is she thinking? She thinks this is all she's worth. She thinks this is her purpose, to stand in the middle of a room while men gawk and applaud as she tries to be as sexy as she can be. Brainwashed, no doubt, by the whole culture of the household. Fathers, mothers, protect your daughters. As a new father, this kills me. Of a daughter, this kills me. Protect your daughters. Teach them their value just because they're your child. And teach them that they are not only worthy and have value because they are your child, but they are a child of God. Teen girls, understand your worth. Understand that your worth is not defined by your sexuality or your promiscuity. It's not defined by how some other people perceive you. Find your worth in being a child of God. Find your worth as one who has been fought for, as one who has been bought and paid for with a price, as one who is worthy of the King of Kings. No matter what some guy may say or culture may preach, you have value and worth as an image bearer of God. Do not forget that truth. But the story gets worse. Verse 8, we just discussed, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on the platter. And here's Herodias' plan come to fruition. What's Herod going to do now? She says, give me the head of John the Baptist now. He's most likely intoxicated. But more than intoxication with alcohol, he's intoxicated with pride. He has neither the courage or conviction to do what is right. He feels like he has to give in to this oath. He violated his own conscience. He orders the execution of John the Baptist in verse 9. He says, And the king was sorry 
But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And then we arrive at verse 12, and Matthew pulls us back into real time. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. That's a tragic story. That's a terrible story. And now maybe it makes a little more sense why Herod would think that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead doing miraculous things because the guilt had weighed hard on his conscience. But you may be sitting here wondering, it's a bad story, but I'm no king, I'm no ruler, I'm not killing anybody that I know of. What in the world does this have to do with me? And I'm so glad you're wondering. Because as I read this story, as I study this story, as I've wrestled through these things, I see three clear warnings here in the text. Three warnings that I believe we need to heed not just once, but every day of our lives. The first one is simply this. Sin deceives. I hope you understand today that sin and every sin is based on a lie. The lie that sin will bring you more happiness, more pleasure, more fulfillment than what you're experiencing right now. But the problem is that's just a lie. And that's the lie that we fall prey to so often. And that's the lie that Herod fell prey to. Herod, while on vacation in Rome, saw his brother's wife. And as he looked at her, he bought the lie that this woman would bring me more pleasure than I have right now. You want to know what ended up happening because of this whole thing with Herodias? Well, remember, Herod had to divorce someone. And that someone was a princess, meaning her father was a king. He didn't like that Herod divorced his little girl. And he brings war to Herod. And if it wasn't for the entire Roman army coming down to Herod's defense, he would have been wiped off the map right then. Herod bought the lie that prestige and popularity would bring him happiness. That his position would bring him fulfillment. You know what eventually happened to Herod and Herodias? After another attempt at a power grab, They got exiled. They got exiled to somewhere called Gaul. Off the map. No position, no power, no prestige. He bought the lie. And not only is the temptation to sin based on a lie, sin is deceitful because it always leads you down a path you do not want to go. You know, Herod didn't wake up on his birthday and say, you know, today I think I am going to behead John the Baptist. That wasn't his thought. He was thinking, I'm having a party today. It's my birthday. You know where that started? It started while on vacation in Rome. As he looked at his brother's wife. And lust turned into adultery and adultery turned into imprisonment and imprisonment turned into execution. That first sin 
set in motion the path that led to the beheading of John the Baptist. And as much as we don't want to compare ourselves to Herod, I think maybe you can see some parallels. When you are confronted with sin, how will you handle it? When that attractive guy or girl who is also married flirts with you at work, will you have the foresight to look down the path that that leads? When you have the opportunity to steal, and even if no one will ever know, will you think about that path that it puts you on? Here in a month or two, when you start filing your taxes, Are you going to think about what it means to be honest or not? You see, we could go on and on with different scenarios that you're going to face in your daily lives, and I could find more toes to step on, I'm sure. We can talk about how fast we're going to drive to lunch after this service. But the truth remains the same. Sin deceives. It doesn't warn you about its consequences, and it certainly doesn't warn you about the path that is putting you on. But without thinking, you will soon be on the path that you never intended to be, just like Herod. So what are you to do? The simple biblical advice here is stop. Don't do it. Don't sin. Just say no. And I know some of you are looking at that and saying, well, that's just too simplistic. It doesn't really work that way to just say no. And I agree that it's not as easy as just saying no. But what we should also understand is that in order to conquer sin, in order to experience victory, that we're going to have to cultivate discipline. We're going to have to cultivate a regular behavior of avoiding sin, of saying no, of resisting temptation. The habit of repenting of sin as soon and as often as it comes. 1 Peter 2.11 puts it this way, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter understands this is a battle. This is a spiritual battle. But he also says abstain. In other words, just say no. But remember, thank the Lord that we are not expected to do this of our own power. Because if you try many have, you will fail. Titus 2 reminds us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, we have the grace of God on our side, but God's grace isn't meant to just be a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, we have God's grace so that it would fuel us so that it would enhance our discipline, so that it would enable us to resist sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's another warning here in the text, and that's that sin traps. Sin often leads us to a place where we feel we cannot escape. 
as we look at this snapshot in Herod's life, we start to understand, well, this isn't just one instance of sin. This isn't just one issue of poor judgment. No, his sin is continuing to lead him down this path that he maybe never wanted to be on in the first place, but it gets progressively worse and worse as lust turns into adultery, and then he has to imprison John, and then he has to kill John. And then we start to understand a little bit about Herod, and we say, man, this guy felt trapped. And he absolutely did. He felt trapped when his wife wanted John dead, but he's like, yeah, but these people think he's a prophet, and what happens if I kill him? And, man, I don't know what to do. And then he feels trapped when he makes this oath in front of his guest and all these important people. He's like, oh, no, I'm trapped. What should I do? I'm going to have to follow through here. And this is what sin does. It makes you feel like you have no escape, that the inevitable choice is to just remain in sin because this is where you have found yourself stuck. Herod was absolutely felt trapped. But was he? No, he wasn't. This is Herod the Tetrarch. This is the most powerful man in the room. If he doesn't want to send John to prison, he doesn't have to. If he doesn't want to behead John the Baptist, he doesn't have to. He's the man in charge. What he says goes. At any time, he could have put a stop to this. But as I said earlier, he lacked both the courage and the conviction to do what was right. What I would say, the scenario that Herod found himself in is really not that all, all that unfamiliar. Not only did his sin lead him down a path that he didn't want to go, he felt trapped by his circumstances. And I can tell you from personal experience in my own life and the numerous counseling sessions that I've had with teenagers and adults alike, is that this is what sin does. That it's easy to believe that sin has you beat. That you can't escape. That you've been avoiding the problem too long and now you're just stuck. That you're a victim in this cycle of sin. And what are you to do? There's no way out. But hear this, that's a lie. Sin deceives. It's a lie from the devil himself that holds too many Christians hostage for way too long. I know this is a lie Throughout Scripture, but especially in the writings of Paul, you know, the murderer, but now turned apostle slash missionary, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. It will have no dominion over you. You do not have to feel trapped by sin because you are not under law, but under grace. He continues in Romans chapter 8 to talk about God's love and how it fuels us. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So what do you do when you find yourself feeling trapped in sin? Number one, you preach the truth to yourself that sin is not your master, that in Christ you are set free, that you have the power of grace within you. That you are not condemned by your sin, but you are set free by Christ. You preach that to yourself often, but then you follow through with obedience and faith. When you find yourself trapped in sin, you turn to the one who has conquered sin. 
When you're unsure about the next step to take, you turn to the one who has promised to direct your path. When you feel overwhelmed by the shame and the guilt that sin brings to you, you turn to the one who has promised to remove every stain of sin from your life. But what about those times that you seem so completely overwhelmed that you are at the point of giving up, that you've tried to preach to yourself, but it's not working anymore? You turn to those who will point you to the truth. You turn to those who will point you towards Jesus. You, you turn to those who will walk beside you and love you through your struggle. Church, this is you. Church, this is our job. The church is to be a place of refuge. The church is to be a hospital for the broken and for the recovering, a place of comfort, a place of growth and encouragement. But too many times the church is known for its judgment, for its hypocrisy, for condemning the sin, while at the same time withholding its hand of grace and forgiveness. Church, let that not be said of the chapel. Let us be a place of healing, of encouragement, of admonition, of growth. That our stories that are represented all throughout this room in our church of people who have experienced the freedom of Christ. And that's only happened as they come together with their church family alongside of pastors and elders. I'm not saying that this is always easy. This is hard stuff. Sin is difficult. Life is hard. Let's do it together by the grace of God. Before we close, there's one more warning here before us. Sin corrupts. Sin will always lead you to a point where your character is corrupted. You know, this tragic story, it not only highlights how bad sin is, but how it affects who you are as a person. You know, Herod had bigger problems than just lust and adultery. Herod had a character problem. He had major character issues. And he had two glaring things that just stick out. Number one, he feared, he feared others more than he feared God, right? He feared the pressure from his wife. He feared losing the popularity of the people. He feared the pressure of his political friends and guests. But he didn't fear God. The most powerful man in the room was paralyzed by what others would think about him. And he allowed others to dictate his behavior, even when he knew it was wrong. That's a character flaw. And it starts with sin. second thing that is clearly evident here is that Herod was a stubborn man. And yes, especially in this case, stubbornness is a symptom of sin. It's sin itself. He had no regard for the law. He did whatever he wanted. He took his brother's wife without hesitation. When confronted with his sin, he refused to admit it. Instead, he put John in jail. He kept an oath that he knew was wrong, but because of other people, he executed John. He was stubborn. He was prideful. And we can see how clearly Herod's sin 
affected his character his whole life. But the question comes back to us. What about us? What about you? What about me? Have you ever sinned knowing exactly what you were doing and exactly what God said about it, but you did it anyway because you bought the lie? Have you allowed others or what you think others are thinking influence your behavior, your actions, your thoughts, your attitudes? Have you ever been too stubborn to admit you're wrong? If we're honest, we've all been in these situations. We've all had similar thoughts to Herod. Which brings us to our end, our main lesson, the main takeaway for this morning. And the main takeaway can't just be don't be like Herod. And it can't just be avoid sin. It has to be something bigger because we know ourselves that, well, if I try not to be Herod and not to sin tomorrow, maybe I'll make it tomorrow. But then i got to get up and do it again the next day. And that's just not going to work. I know me. And I know my propensity to sin. So what do we, what do, we do? What's the takeaway? The takeaway is not just to avoid sin, but to pursue Christ. We must pursue Christ because what we're looking for here is not behavior modification, but it's heart transformation. It's less about works and more about faith. It's less about us and more about God. It's less about rules and more about life. And so no matter what sin you're facing today, no matter how long you felt trapped, no matter how you got to where you are today, we serve a God of hope. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Hope is available to you today. Let today be the day you experience the freedom that Christ offers Let today be the day that you avoid the path of destruction that sin will inevitably lead. Let today be a day of freedom and hope in your life through the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're we're thankful that we don't have to be perfect because we know we're not. That we don't have to have it all together And you don't expect us to. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace that it not only washes the guilt of of sin away, but that it enables us to live a life for your glory. Lord, we sang the words earlier, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. Lord, change us, transform us in this moment so that we will better glorify you, so that we will cause people to see the difference that you have brought in our lives. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.